What's up, guys, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Listen to Me Speak podcast. I'm your host, Kayla Taylor, and I want to thank you guys so much for the immense amount of love that you showed me on last week's episode. It is officially the most popular episode of season two. I don't know if you guys really enjoyed my Summer Walker review. You liked my opinions and what I had to say about the whole Astro World's um, tragedy. I don't know what it was. It doesn't matter what it was. Thank you guys so much for showing love. It really made my day, especially when I put a lot of time and effort into these episodes. And I was really, really excited to review Summer Walker's new album. So it really, really made my day. I appreciate it. And, you know, hopefully you guys love my Silk Sonic album review just as much and my Adele album review. There's a lot of good music that's been coming out lately, so hopefully we keep this momentum going and you guys enjoy these episode, these next episodes as well. So without wasting any more time, let's get right into this episode, shall we? So you know, of course, I have to start off the episode by talking about Britney Spears, who was finally freed from her conservatorship after, I believe, 13 years. And not only that, but she most recently teased an interview with Oprah. Now, if you want to sit down and give, what's the way to say this? When you are an artist like Britney Spears, who has been through a lot, and your voice has been silenced for over a decade, and you're going to speak out for the first time, you would want to go to someone like Oprah. Oprah, for decades, has been the go-to interviewer when you really want to sit down and talk about the heavy stuff and you know despite how I feel about Oprah my opinions I will say that her interviews are always for the most part done tastefully and so I feel like Oprah is the perfect person for Britney Spears to go to I think that her family is probably on edge because now Britney is free to say whatever she wants and best believe she is going to say whatever it is that she wants I think that this whole situation shows the good side of stands and, and, and a fandom who Britney Spears fans and Britney Spears fans alone really kind of put what was going on behind the scenes to the public, forced the public to pay attention. Like, no, th- there's something wrong here. And this woman is essentially being held prisoner by her home, by her own family and we need to spread, we need to shine a light on this so that maybe in the future enough people will be paying attention and finally we could end this conservatorship. And that's exactly what ended up happening after so long and after seeing her fans over social media for years and years and years, you know, start the Free Britney movement and like really campaign to to get her free and, and kind of, I guess share the, the the legal information with the masses, like Britney Spears fans. I don't know if they have like a fandom name. I don't know if they're the Britney army. I don't know. But props to them because they really played a vital role in, I believe, getting Britney freed. And I think she thinks so as well. She said so. So I think that this was a great moment. I mean, even reading her caption after the um, decision was made, saying that she finally got the keys to her car. Like she couldn't even get something that's so simple, something that we do every day. We grab our keys and get in our cars and we just go. 
that's something that she had to ask permission to do. She couldn't really leave her home. She couldn't see her kids, I believe, in the way that she probably wanted to see them or on her own terms. So it's really the simple things. And when you really look back to some of the freedoms that she mentioned that she didn't have over the past 13 years, you realize just how abusive and wrong that was for her. I, I, as long as I've been old enough to really realize what was going on in that situation, I always felt it was odd. Even if someone's mental health isn't the greatest, I felt like Britney Spears seemed capable enough to be able to control her own career and control her life. And you know, obviously she suffered a mental breakdown years ago. Some people theorize that maybe it was postpartum and she just wasn't diagnosed. But I feel like a lot of people go through a bad period and eventually, hopefully, you come out of it. And I think that they took the opportunity of Brittany having that mental breakdown and decided we're just going to take advantage of her and of the situation. And I really feel like what they should have done was maybe just gotten her a therapist, gotten her help instead of creating, I, I don't want to say creating because Britney Spears' family didn't create a, uh, the whole conservatorship thing and, and how it, how it works, but I don't think it was right for Britney. So I think it's a lot of us, even though we don't know her personally, just we're celebrating that day because as a human being, if you have a decent heart, you never want to see someone be held prisoner or have their rights taken away. That's not right. It doesn't matter who you are in this world. Everybody deserves to have the right to live the way they want to and to just be free. So this was a great moment for her. But, you know, back to the interview that she teased, I do think she's very, very serious about this Oprah interview. There's nothing that they can do anymore to, to prevent her from doing this. I think she's definitely going to address her father her mother, because most recently she's been like giving the smoke out to her mother. I definitely think she's going to address Jamie Lynn Spears as well. And, and all of the questions that we've had over the years, I definitely think are going to be brought to light. And like I said, in a very tasteful way, I think Oprah knows that the public is really going to be watching this interview and, and they're going to be protective of Britney. Um, so I have no doubt that you know, Oprah is going to give anything less than a tasteful interview like she did for Adele and like she did for Meghan Markle. It seems like Oprah was always the go-to, but it feels like she's going through another wave of now everybody's coming to Oprah for to give these in-depth interviews. So I will definitely be tuned in to watch and I think things are going to start looking really bad for the Spears family. That That's all I have to say on this situation, but congratulations on Britney Spears being freed long time coming. Moving on from Britney, Disney Plus announces a bunch of new content, including an animated Spider-Man series, the wand, the announcement of the WandaVision spinoff Agatha House of Harkness, and they released the first trailer of the Proud Family Louder and Prouder. So obviously we knew that Agatha was going to get her own spinoff, but now we actually have the title, which I guess counts for the announcement. I think that they have a lot of room to play around with this character, especially because she was so captivating. I'm blanking on the actress's name in real life and I'm so mad at that because I've seen her in a, in a bunch of things, but the actress who played her just really gave her this, I don't know, this really fun energy that even though she's a villain, you kind of just, you're just so fascinated by her. You kind of want to see more of her. You kind of wouldn't have been mad if she won just because she was just so she was kind of like one of those fun villains, kind of like how I felt about Regina on Once Upon a Time, the Evil Queen. The, the Evil Queen. 
um, you just kind of, I don't know, you just want to see them win or you kind of want to see them have the upper hand, even if it's for a little bit. And I think that her character was, she, the, the writers of WandaVision gave us enough with that character, but we don't know a whole lot of Agatha's origin, obviously. We don't know a whole lot about her. And I feel like she, she is probably a complex character. I don't know much about her from the comics, but a lot of people were excited um, about Agatha. So I think that this show is obviously a great opportunity to explore the character and kind of just introduce us into new fun storylines. I feel like Marvel's in this phase now where, okay, we just got over, we just ended a huge chapter, you know, Endgame, you know, kind of was the ending to the stories that Marvel had been telling for 10 years. So now they're in a space where they get to introduce new characters and superheroes and new storylines and try something different. And Disney Plus is obviously an extension of Marvel and it allows them to keep mini storylines or side characters and, and kind of give make them the main focus on these shows. So when they were talking about Disney Plus and, and how Marvel was going to have a huge part of the streaming service, I thought it was a great idea, a great opportunity to continue this. You know, HBO Max is kind of doing that with DC and Disney Plus has Marvel. And, you know, I fear that we probably wouldn't have gotten a WandaVision without Disney Plus. We wouldn't have gotten an Agatha, obviously. So we get to shine a light on some of our favorite side characters. And, you know, a lot of these shows have proven that these side characters can hold their own in, in their own TV show or in their own movie. Honestly, I would sit and watch a Wanda-focused movie because I enjoyed WandaVision so much. And I think that the desire to see more of her is definitely going to increase after the Doctor Strange movie because that's the only reason I'm really looking forward to the sequel of Doctor Strange because WandaVision was so good. So I'm definitely going to be sitting and watching the Agatha spinoff. The animated Spider-Man, I love Spider-Man. You know he's one of my favorite superheroes. I have to see a trailer before I decide because when it comes to animated things as an adult, I'm hit or miss. It, it usually has to be kind of like the Proud Family where it's um, a show from a, a childhood that's coming back that I'm nostalgic about or it just has to be done really well or, or feel like a well-rounded show. It doesn't feel like it's only for kids. It can be for all ages. So if the trailer is good, I'll definitely check out the Spider-Man show. As far as the Proud Family, Louder and Prouder, I, the moment they announced that they were doing a spinoff or a reboot, I was excited. Now, I know I can kind of come off as a hypocrite because I'm like, oh, why do we keep rebooting these shows? Why do we keep doing these spinoffs? Like, yada, 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 let's be original. Sometimes it's not always bad. And sometimes when it comes to shows like The Proud Family or even Raven's Home, when it's an extension, not an extension, when you're kind of intra a new generation to the show. I don't know how to, how to say this properly in a way that makes sense. It makes sense in my head. Pretty much what Raven's Home did, maybe if I describe what each show has done, maybe I can get my point across better. What Raven's Home did was it aged Raven. And now she's got her own kids and now they're kind of going through similar things that she went through as a kid. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. You're kind of joining two generations together. And that's kind of what the Proud family is doing by aging Penny and she's you know about to graduate high school and she's going off to college and these characters that we loved are now getting older so it's like it works enough for young kids who are into cartoons to be interested and it also brings back the generation that they originally had their their core audience and it allows them to come back and say hey we've missed these characters for x amount of years and now we kind of get to see where they pick off I think that 
a lot of movies and shows, sometimes we deep down know, hey, this doesn't really need to come back. But sometimes we love characters so much, we're fine with sequels, we're fine with spinoffs just because we want to see where they are. You know, like I don't think that Glee really needs a reboot or a spinoff. I'm very much against it, especially now that Corey and Naya are no longer here. I think it's just a reminder that they're not here and our favorite characters are by extension no longer here. So for me, I don't really wish to see a reboot. I think even if Corey and Naya were still here, I probably wouldn't want to see a reboot. I think that Glee worked really well for its time. Glee does not work in the 2020s. It, it just doesn't. Like, I see a lot of the younger generation getting into that show on Netflix and saying, oh, this is this flew back then? And yeah, it did. A lot of things that, that you wouldn't even think should have uh been okay 10 years ago was because it still was a different time even just only 10 years ago so I think that certain shows and films don't need to come back but I think it's just a desire sometimes at least for the audience not from the company standpoint because for them it's always money but from an audience and fan standpoint it's a desire to kind of see where these characters are at now 10 years later and I get it there are certain characters that I love or storylines where I'm like I wonder if these characters are still together I wonder what they would be doing now especially when it's a show that was centered around high school and they graduated um so I understand that but for the proud family I think that it's a I, I don't mind them bringing it back I think it's a good idea and I think for Disney plus one thing I feel like is missing is kind of some of that old Disney feel that we used to have. Like there was definitely a golden age of Disney that's not around anymore. And Disney plus having the old content, it does help us remember some of that magic. But I feel like where Disney plus is kind of lacking is trying to tap back into that magic. It doesn't necessarily have to be a bunch of reboots and spinoffs off of the, you know, golden era shows that we love. But there is a way to kind of be original and kind of try to tap back into that magic that Disney has lost over the years. I think that's one thing Disney Plus could definitely improve on and maybe the Proud Family, the spinoff will inspire that. I don't know. But speaking of Disney and when I was talking about the Spider-Man animated show, the second Spider-Man trailer dropped and so I'm freeballing it here. There's a lot to probably get into. I'm probably going to miss some things and ramble about some things. But I remember on last week's episode, I told you that I don't believe a damn word that Tom Holland says about the other Spider-Mans coming back. He's, he claims Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire are not coming back. Right from this trailer, you see both Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man and Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man villains come back. You have Jamie Foxx from The Amazing Spider-Man. I, I, Electro, I kind of think that was, and he looks so much better and much more believable in that 10 second clip of him than he ever did in The Amazing Spider-Man. They improved him a lot. You have him come back and you also have Dr. Octopus or Doc Ock, as we call him, come back. I don't believe that you're bringing back these villains from the other Spider-Man movies just to not bring back the Spider-Mans. Obviously, they're not going to give that away in the trailer. They're probably going to keep that hush-hush. I will be very surprised if I walk out of that theater in December and um, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield didn't come back, even if it's just for a scene. I feel like the way that this next phase is heading 
And that's very clear from Spider-Man, this trailer. It's very clear from WandaVision. It's very clear from the Loki show. They're all heading in the direction of playing with different times, alternate universes. And it really started with Thanos, if you think about it. Obviously, I don't believe that when Captain America went back and, and, and put back the stones and, and tried to reset time, that everything went back to normal. There's just no way. You can't, you can't fix everything perfectly when you go back into time like that. I think Wanda definitely messed with things. Spider-Man probably did. Spider-Man, what Spider-Man did, which is for those of you who didn't watch the trailer, at the end of the second Spider-Man, spoiler alert, um, it's revealed or Peter Parker is outed as Spider-Man. And so he goes to Doctor Strange and um, convinces him to cast a spell to get people to forget that he is Spider-Man. Obviously, they cast the spell wrong and it opens up all these doors to the different alternate universes, which is why um, past Spider-Man villains from other movies come back into this film, right? So like I was saying before, I think Wanda played a part in messing up um, the multiverse. I think Loki did. And I think Spider-Man was the final nail in that coffin. So this next phase, and I'm really going to enjoy this next phase if it's playing with time because I'm a huge fan of The Flash. And if you watch, you know, The Flash on the Arrowverse version of The Flash, you know they talk a whole lot about, you know, um, different universes because Barry's a speedster and he can kind of jump through different timelines and universes. And there are certain rules that if you are able to mess with time that you just don't do. Barry has a code that he's broken numerous times. And Doctor Strange has a code too, which he's also broken numerous times. And each time you break one of these codes, it proves to be disastrous. And that's exactly what this trailer looks like. I, before the whole Sony and Marvel thing, I could have seen Tom Holland playing Spider-Man a lot longer. I could have seen him do a fourth Spider-Man movie. I think he was definitely going to be playing a vital role in the other Marvel movies. I think they eventually would have done another Avenger type of movie. I don't know if they would still call it the Avengers. I definitely could have seen him integrated that way because it seemed like they were trying to make him the next Iron Man, which is what a lot of people's huge criticisms with Tom Holland Spider-Man is, is that they're trying to make him too much like Iron Man from the fact that, you know, Tony essentially passed down his mantle to Peter, the suit, everything. So I think this third movie is the second movie he was struggling with that and I think by this third film we're gonna see him kind of hopefully you know come into his own and to just be Peter Parker and Spider-Man instead of trying to be Tony and Iron Man the one thing that really bothered me with this trailer it's giving me like it was like a little trigger for me was there's this one scene where MJ is she like she falls or she's pushed and she's falling essentially to her death. And Peter jumps after her and is trying to save her because it reminds me of the second Amazing Spider-Man film where Gwen falls and Peter's trying to save her and he's too late. She hits her head so hard on the ground, she dies. And those scenes were too parallel to each other that I feel like they're gonna try to do the same thing and kill 
MJ off, which is something I hope they don't do. But I also wouldn't be surprised. Zendaya is scheduled, though. I'm sure she's going to make time for a freaking Spider-Man movie. It's Marvel. She is busy. She books other roles. She's on Euphoria. The pandemic has definitely messed with everybody's schedules. For those actors who are working more than one project, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of overlap there. I wouldn't overly be surprised if they decide to do that, but I really, really hope they do not because I was so pissed when they killed Gwen off in the sequel and it was very obvious at the time we were expecting Andrew Garfield to do a third film it was very obvious that they were going to introduce um MJ or Mary J Mary Jane because I think that's what they were calling her back then um it was very obvious that they were going to introduce her to the third film that's why they killed Gwen off because before the amazing Spider-Man I didn't even know that he had a love interest named Gwen I thought it was always Mary Jane and so the fact that not only did Gwen die, but then there was no third movie, I think they ended up shelving it, really annoyed me. So I do hope that that was just put in the trailer to kind of get us a little nervous and that she doesn't end up dying. I will be so pissed if she does. Either way, the second trailer was really, really good. And I'm looking forward to this next Spider-Man film even more than I already was. And I just can't wait to see this next phase because I really do think that Spider-Man is really going to kick off this this phase. Obviously, I think Shang-Chi and the Eternals, which I'm going to get into my review a little bit later, they were just origin stories to kind of introduce us to these new characters. And obviously, they'll play a vital role later in a lot of the drama that's about to kick off. But I don't think they're, necess they're necessary, truly. I didn't watch Shang-Chi yet, so I can't really talk about that. The Eternals, I think you could get away with not seeing it. If you're really not interested in it, I don't think it plays a vital part of the central idea yet. Now, I could be wrong because we don't exactly know everything that's going to be occurring in this phase. So by the time we get to the end of this phase, we'll look back on the Eternals and might say, hey, actually, you do need to see this movie. But mostly they're origin stories to introduce the audience to these new characters so that when they pop up later in the other films, we'll kind we're kind of knowing what's going on. But I think Spider-Man is truly going to set it off and then obviously Doctor Strange and all of that. But it all looks like it's heading in the right direction. I'm satisfied so far. So obviously both Real Housewives in Salt Lake City and Potomac are coming to an end this season. And while I'll get into Potomac once I finish the reunion, I did want to touch on Salt Lake City a little bit before the reunion. And so these past, this season has been good. Salt Lake City but these last few episodes have been crazy. So within the past two or three episodes, we have Jen ducking arrest. And if you don't know, Jen Shaw was arrested for allegedly um, committing fraud and a bunch of other things, but fraud is the, the one main thing I, I remember. And from a, the charges that they said in the show, it sounds very serious. She is facing some serious time. I think around maybe over 20 years. So she's she's really in hot water. We see Mary losing her damn mind. And I was really rooting for Mary. I really was. But after watching these episodes, I, I can't do it. We see Mary and Lisa and Whitney. Um, or we see Mary versus Lisa. And then we see Mary versus Whitney. And then we kind of see Lisa starting to turn and kind of become the secondary villain of the season. So with these housewife shows, I noticed that every season, a different woman is the villain. And I think Jen was last year, obviously. 
but somehow it's shifted to Mary this season and Lisa as well. So obviously I remember when the story broke in real time, Jen's arrest, but it was still crazy seeing it happen on the show and seeing it, I guess, technically play out in real time on camera. And I think it's so bold <laughs> that on camera, she's clearly evading arrest. All you see her do, she's sitting in the backseat of the bus. She gets a phone call. She makes up some excuse that her husband's in the hospital, which I think you have to be an awful human being. Not only are you evading arrest, but you created a lie that your husband was seriously ill and in the hospital. The women are obviously freaking out because they're afraid that her husband's going to die. They're concerned. They're literally thinking about delaying their trip or not even going so they could be with Jen and comfort her. And then after that, it's like she was gone. And then like maybe 10 minutes later, the cops show up and it's not just the cops, it's the FBI. Like it's a whole freaking SWAT team. That was wild to watch. I don't think I've ever in all of my years of watching reality TV seen something like that play out. Even when Teresa and Joe Judice were going through their legal troubles on the show, the most you ever really see them do is go to court. The cameras don't follow them in there. And then you see them get in their car driving to go to prison. But you never, I've never seen something like this where one of them is evading arrest. So that was wild to, to, to see. <laughs> it really was. I think a lot of things, and, and I won't say everything because I'm sure there are some of you who listen that watch, so I don't want to spoil everything. Some of the things that come out about Mary were not overly shocking. It's very clear that Lisa's kind of setting her up, you know, to kind of get exposed on camera and for the world to see after they got into their little argument. And I think that's what, as evil as I think Mary is, I think Lisa's just as evil because honestly, evil will always come to light. So it doesn't really matter if Lisa had set her up or not. That stuff about Mary would have already come out. But when you go out of your way, and, and I'm sure Lisa would deny this if, if anybody called her out on it. But for you to go out of your way to purposely bring that on camera or to even kind of make your friend. Because Meredith looked very uncomfortable when... Um, Lisa brought around that man who was making those claims about Mary. You could see that Meredith was very uncomfortable. She verbalizes how uncomfortable she is. Meredith is supposed to be one of Lisa's closest friends. So the fact that you aren't even willing to put your friend's comfort as the priority and you'd rather put your vendetta over that, it says a lot about you, I think, as a person. And so as much as I think that Mary is horrible, I think Lisa is just as horrible. I think they kind of met their match there. I definitely don't like the way Mary's treating Whitney. I think, like Whitney says herself, Whitney was one of the few women on the show that really stuck up for Mary and was really there for her and really didn't alienate her on behalf of Jen last season. So the fact that Mary would kind of just degrade her and treat her so horribly in front of their friends and the cameras, it was difficult to watch because Whitney seems like such a sweetheart. She seems like she's easy to get along with. And so that, to me... I, obviously, I knew Mary was a little cuckoo, but that to me, I think was like, oh, she's really not all that nice. So the claims that are brought against Mary aren't that hard to believe. It is funny seeing the women kind of be fake with each other when they're all around, but talk shit about each other in the confessionals. And that's what makes the, re the, the reunion so interesting and funny and, and entertaining because 
you know, the world has now seen what you said in those confessionals and now your co well, your coworkers, your your cast have now seen those episodes air along with the along with the rest of the world. So they had no idea until then. And it makes me laugh because it's very clear that some of these women forget that these confessionals are gonna air. And so they're just wild and free. And then when they're called out about it on the reunion and try to act like that's not what they said, Andy is very quick to pull the clip and play it. And it's always funny every time. It doesn't matter who it happens to. It's it's always funny. Because just, just tell the truth. The episode has been out for how long now? Everybody has seen it. The producers of the show are shady enough to play the clip right after you've denied saying what we know you said. So that's what makes that's part of what makes these reunions so interesting. And I think that the reunion for this show is going to be quite a mess in the best of ways. I do have a friend that's kind of like my housewife buddy. And we toyed with the idea of me bringing her on um, an episode of this podcast and kind of breaking down the whole entire season and the reunion. So I won't go too, too deep into some of my opinions. I won't spoil anything that's been going on the show yet, but I'm definitely thinking about having her come on so we can kind of do a recap of the season and kind of like get into our thoughts and opinions. And trust me, we have a lot of them. Now I did read on a gossip site that they are, they put out a casting notice for Salt Lake City and a lot of people are thinking it's because Chen is in so much legal trouble that she may not be on the show next season. She may not be allowed to be. I think that Jenny was kind of her replacement too as they've kind of phased Jen out. Like I said, Jen's been, this is the most drama Jen has really been in since the very beginning of the season when she was kind of trying to make amends. So it seems like they're kind of phasing her out. She's becoming less of the center of the show and it's very possible that they may get rid of a couple of them. I think... The things that are going on with Mary right now are interesting enough to keep her on for another season. They could toy with the possibility of getting rid of um, Heather. I like Heather. She's one of my favorites, but she does not bring enough drama to the show that they may find her kind of boring and, and, and replaceable. So I think she's possible. I like Whitney as well. I think Whitney's possible too, because like I said, Whitney's really sweet. Outside of her issues with Lisa that have become kind of repetitive, she doesn't really bring any drama either. So I think she is a possibility. She, um, It's possible that they may get rid of her as well. Or it could just be that they're looking for a replacement for Jen and only Jen. Time will tell. But like I said, that reunion is going to be very, very good. In other TV news, Queen Sugar has been renewed for a seventh and final season, and that's not really a shock to me. A lot of the storylines with the characters seem to kind of be coming, coming full circle. You know, Darla and Ralph Angel. A little spoiler alert for those of you who have not watched. I always forget to do spoiler alerts. But, um, you know, Darla and Ralph Angel, they seem you know, overall to be in a much better and healthier place. They obviously still have their issues, but what couple doesn't? She's pregnant. You know, they're getting to kind of start over and right the wrongs that went, well, this is kind of mean. I don't mean it in a mean way, but they kind of get to start over and right a lot of the wrongs that they did with Blue. You know, Darla wasn't the greatest mother to Blue for a while and Ralph didn't do the best by Blue for a while either. So they kind of get to start over and do the right thing. And now that they're a little bit older and a little wiser, they can hopefully be healthier parents. They've come full circle in that way. Charlie and Davis are trying to make it work, something I never thought I'd see happen. 
And it's kind of taking back to season one where she was kind of toying with, you know, should I leave him? Should I stay with him to try to make it work? You know, they're, they're more mature. It seems like Davis has finally gotten his shit together. He knows what he wants. They're trying to make it work. Nova, I feel like, is in a place where her storyline has gone as far as it can go after the cop storyline i felt like anything else they can really do with her is just not redundant but there's not much more you can do with her character i think that she her storyline really hit its peak when she wrote that book and she definitely needed that ass humbled and she definitely got the humbling she needed and nova is a though i haven't forgiven her for what she did because i think out of all the things the fact that she told the truth about blue was wrong that was not her place but I definitely think that the backlash she received from her family caused her to maybe take a step back, look at herself, and become a slightly better person. Vi and Hollywood are, I feel like they're, intro- I, I think I know where they're going with them. Vi has had a few health scares um, the past couple of seasons, and she's had another one this season. I hope they're not planning to kill her off, but I wouldn't be surprised it's very clear that Hollywood has a desire to be a father. And I think Vi is noticing that. And I think it's going to be a little issue for them because I I don't know if Vi is now just too old to have kids or if she just couldn't have them ever or if she never wanted them. Obviously, that's going to be an issue in their relationship. and, And I think they have had a few rough bumps in the road. So I wouldn't say they've come full circle, but I think that by season seven, we're going to kind of see some resolution in their relationship or the end of it. It could go either way. Though Micah hasn't really come full circle. He's a little too young, I think, to come full circle. He is starting to get to know himself. And he's around, his character is around my age on the show. And that's kind of when you, you're at that age, you're, you've kind of accepted or you're starting to accept and figure out and know who you are. He's in college, you know, that's definitely when you start to figure all these things out. And so I feel like he's growing up, he's maturing, and he's getting to know himself, which is a beautiful thing. I think this has been his most interesting storyline in the past couple of seasons. So I think, you know, with all of the storylines I've mentioned, a season, uh, one last season is good enough for them to kind of wrap up those storylines and put a neat little bow on it. I think that if there is any character deaths... Vi is my theory just because we've known that she has health issues and she the most recent episode I watched she did have a health scare um I'm hoping they don't go there but I wouldn't be surprised like I said and even though it's kind of a bittersweet um announcement you know it's kind of like okay they've told all the stories they can tell no need to drag it out further but also these are characters that I enjoy watching so it is going to suck not being able to to see what kind of new storylines and and challenges they face. But I think season seven is going to, like I said, put a nice bow on things. So that is all I have for my TV news, but I want to get into my movie review. I'm not going to lie. Every time I do a movie review, I get a little nervous because I kind of tend to feel like they're all over the place or I feel like I'm not verbalizing what I actually want to say. Like I, in my head, the thoughts... Or even before I get behind the mic, I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this point. I'm going to make that point. And I feel like sometimes all of my, I don't get all the points across that I want to. And then after I finish the episode, I'm like, man, I could have said it this way. This made more sense. But anyway, I'm going to give it a go. 
So The Eternals is a flawed film that couldn't quite decide which stories it wanted to tell. It's essentially a story about humanity and whether humanity is worth saving or not. Now, I do want to give a spoiler alert for those of you who do plan on seeing The Eternals who haven't yet. I will be talking about some of the... I will be spoiling the plot. I will be talking about the end credit in detail. So if you do plan on watching The Eternals, skip forward. If you don't plan on watching or you don't really give a shit about spoilers, then hang around and, and listen to me rant and ramble about this movie. So a little background or a summary about the film. The Eternals are essentially these superhuman immortals that are sent down by their creator to kind of protect the earth from what they call deviants. Now deviants are, we find out later in the film, that the Eternals don't realize that they weren't born, they were made. So they eventually come to that conclusion and they eventually find out as well that the deviants that they've been fighting for centuries were actually the first generations of them that went horribly wrong, that their creator essentially made the Eternals to kind of fix where he went wrong with the Deviants. So essentially, they're set, sent down by their maker to protect the human race from these Deviants. And throughout the film, you see the characters kind of struggle with their moral code in a way because they were taught and trained to think a certain way and then they're finding out, things are coming out and they have to rethink that. That's kind of like having to, having this identity, being so sure about your identity and what you want to do and then having it challenged or shaken or taken from you. And you see a lot of these characters struggle with these, you know, some of these characters are on the more moral side of things and there are certain characters that turn out to be more, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. There are characters that they know what's morally wrong and other characters that don't care because they've been trained and taught and raised to think a certain way and they're not going to deviate from that way of thinking. So it's kind of like, yeah, the film is about, you know, human race, like the human race and, you know, whether it's worth saving. And it's also about having beliefs. And when those beliefs are shaken, what do you do? So in that way, the film is strong because I think as humans, we all still struggle with the fact that the world is not black and white. There is a lot of gray area. And I think that the film captured that accurately and as realistic as a supernatural and superhero movie can do. I do think that the first way this movie went wrong was that it tried to tell too many stories at once, resulting in a very long running time, which was two hours and 30 plus minutes. The order of the movie was a jumbled mess. They bounced around so many different decades and time periods that you end up not knowing which way is up. Honestly, The Eternals felt like the first film and sequel combined into one. It goes back to me saying that they didn't really know which story to tell. There were pieces of this film that felt like an origin story. Then there were pieces of this film that felt like it was heading towards kind of the present and then a more current story. And then there were parts of this film that made you feel like they were heading in a completely new direction that they were already kind of setting up the tone for the next film, but not in a way that makes sense. It kind of felt like that in the middle of the movie, like they're already kind of telling us too much about what's to come, if that makes sense. It didn't feel like they were just foreshadowing. It felt like, here's the origin story, here's what's going on now, here's what 
it's going to happen. And I know the way I said it makes it seem like, oh, that, that's perfect pacing. But though it wasn't in chronological order. It just felt like they were giving the audience too much at once. I think it would have fared much better if they had made this one an origin story with some conflict. So the main conflict in the film, which was trying to prevent the... So their maker created like these, I don't even know what to call them, but they're this like, I guess we can say supernatural beings. And I guess they they planted this particular being, the seed of it in the earth. And so once it is at, once it's ready to, I guess, emerge, um, the earth would have exploded, killing everybody on earth. Once the characters discover this, they're trying to their best to find a way to prevent this emergence from happening or to stall it because they know that the emergence has to at least happen. But if they can stall it and kind of get everybody to safety, that's what they want to do. So I feel like that part of the storyline was interesting enough. They could have made that the focal point, but I feel like they deviated a little too much from that and there was too much going on. So I felt like it would have been a much stronger film if it had just been the origin story and then this conflict rather than um, other things going on. The performances among the cast was phenomenal though, particularly Richard Madden, Salma Hayek, which I think that's how you pronounce her name, and Angelina Jolie. They did phenomenal and I do want to talk a little bit about the characters. So my favorite characters... Well, I'm going to start off with my all-time favorite, which was Thena, who, of course, was played by Angelina Jolie. I loved her background and her origin, and I really feel like she has the strongest potential if they were to spin something off for a Disney Plus show or even just a movie, because um, her... So when the film starts off, she has Mad Weary, is what they call it, which is that her mind is fracturing, she doesn't know her reality, she doesn't know what's real, what's fake, and she essentially suffers from a mental breakdown, and so Gilgamesh, who's kind of like her best friend or becomes her best friend in the film, instead of resetting her memory like um, Ajak um, suggests, he decides to be her caretaker and that, you know, to just rather than reset her memories, he'd rather just take care of her, even if he's putting himself in harm's way, he feels like she won't be Thena anymore if they reset her memory, which he's correct. I feel like Thena kind of brought some realism to the film um, with the mental health aspect, especially being the goddess of war. Obviously, she's lived for centuries, which means she's seen a lot of conflicts. She's fought in some wars. She's killed people. It does have an effect, a negative effect on your brain. And I feel like that was really real. And it just, I don't know, there was something about her character that just felt like Yes, we're telling a superhero story, but it's more than that. She just, her character felt so much more real. I don't know if it's the emotion that Angelina Jolie brought to the role, but I felt it. And even in that scene where Gilgamesh does die, the way that Thena breaks down and cries over his body and hugs his body close to her chest, just felt very raw. So Thena really stuck out to me. I loved Ajax as a character. Ajak as a character, I may not have agreed with all of her choices, but she was kind of like the mother figure among them. And it was kind of like she had to make a lot of difficult decisions so that they could kind of live better lives or just be free of a lot of the darkness and terror that she knew that was going to occur. She protected them from a lot. And so it was really sad when she um, died and was killed. And Icarus, as much as I hated him, 
because he betrayed them. He kills Ajax. He kind of tries to kill them to prevent them from stopping the emergence. He was a really good villain. The way he turned on them reminded me of Captain Marvel, in which I can't remember the name, but um, the guy who trained Captain Marvel to be kind of, to fight. Um, you find out that he's actually the reason her memories are gone. She's the reason. He's the reason she um, suffered from that kind of chemical blast, and he's actually preventing her from accessing her powers in full because it's kind of like it's an ego thing he doesn't want her to um access her potential because he knows that she's a better fighter than he is and he knows that the powers that she possessed blew anything that he could do out of the water so when icarus when you find out that he's actually the villain that turn kind of reminded me of what happened in captain marvel and even though i couldn't stand him richard madden played that fucking role he did a good job and again, it showed that the world is not black and white. So it's like he is the villain, but you can understand why he, his character felt the way he did. He, that's all he knew. He only knew, and I forgot the maker's name, but he only knew what the maker drilled into each of their heads. So to him, to us, it's morally wrong what he's doing. But to him, what we think and what the other Eternals are doing is morally wrong to him. So as much as I couldn't stand Icarus, I also kind of liked the character at the same time because of the com the complexities of the character. It's like, you know, deep down there's a good person there, but he's just been led astray and he's also not ready to accept the truth. And, you know, he flies right into the sun, just like the tale says he does. And it was just a beautiful but sad moment. And I think this film, that's also one of its strong suits. Like each of these characters are obviously named like after, what do you want to call them? I don't want to say folklore, but kind of, you know, Icarus, Thena, she's the goddess of war. And so they kind of took the stories that we've heard and kind of twisted them in a way that I loved that Once Upon a Time used to do, where they took the fairy tales and kind of twisted them and gave them a new story. And so that scene was one of my favorites where he flies into the sun because it's kind of like he's accepted the truth and he also can't handle it knowing what he's done to prevent the truth from coming out, how he hurt his family, how he killed Ajax. Because the moment he does, you can see that he really struggles with the fact that he had done so. And so it's kind of like a battle of, like he doesn't know how to battle all of these things that can be true at once and he just decides to take the coward's way out and he flies into the sun and he kills himself. I also think this film would have been a lot better if maybe they had a stronger main character. Cersei wasn't awful but she kind of was bland and I felt like there were so many other characters that would have been a stronger choice. Even Icarus who ends up being evil as all hell, he would have made a better leader. He would have been the smarter choice to take over the mantle from Ajax. Obviously, Ajax had a lot of foresight and she probably noticed that something was off about Icarus for a while and that's why he didn't get it even though he was stronger than Cersei and even though he had better leadership qualities than her. Cersei kind of felt like a kid who was just out of their depth and really only was able to kind of save the world by the skin on her teeth and because she had such a strong and solid team around her. But I felt like Characters like Thena and Icarus and even Sprite at times took over, overshadowed her is the word. 
even that scene where Gilgamesh dies, I felt more in that scene than I did in any scene with Cersei. It just, even her chemistry with um, Icarus just didn't, I didn't feel it. Athena had more chemistry with him in that fight battle, that, 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 not the fight battle, but the battle that they had towards the end of the film. So Cersei kind of falls flat as a main character. I don't find her super interesting. There's nothing that draws me to her. I felt like um, if they had went with a stronger main character that they would have fared a little bit better. The cinematography and the direction were, were stunning and so were the settings that they chose. I know that the director, and I can't, I'm blanking on her name. I don't even think I know how to, I don't wanna even say it cause I might um, mess with the pronunciation. But I remember when they interviewed her, she talked about choosing sets that felt real. Like a lot of the settings in this film were based on nature, if that makes sense. They were nature-based. There weren't a whole lot of scenes with them in towns and walking through cities. It was a lot of scenes in the woods and scenes on the desert and, you know, scenes on ice even. So... I think that was a conscious effort on the director. And for some reason, it works for the film. And I think part of the reason she said she chose that was to make the film feel more real. And when you think about it, I think maybe part of what makes it work is that because these characters are very, very old. They're from, I think it starts out in like 500 BC. And so this was before civilizations look the way they look now. Like now, obviously we see a little bit of them in the present. The film starts off, well, the, the beginning of the film, Cersei is in London. So we see them around modern civilization and, and towns and, and structures. But these characters don't come from that. They come from a much older time. So it does make sense. It's more fitting that a lot of, most of the movie is set against just nature and it's beautiful. The shots were stunning. The nature of course looks great. And I imagine they probably used a little less green screen than a lot of superhero movies do because there are a lot of superhero movies where pretty much all of the movie is shot on a green screen stage. And I obviously they used green screen in this film as well, but I think the nature was just the, the actual sets for the most part were pretty real. It just didn't look fake at all to me. It didn't have that cheap superhero look. It felt real. I love the major plot twists of the film. Some were unexpected. Like, I wasn't expecting Icarus to be evil. I really wasn't. It did catch me off guard. It wasn't one of those <gasps> moments, like this huge gas moment. And oh my God, what a great. But it was an interesting turn for the film. But I feel like though it was interesting and I enjoyed the fact that he was the villain and it was foreshadowed like you knew he was hiding a secret I just didn't expect that to be the secret I wasn't expecting him to be um the person who killed Ajax. but I think it's at this point of the film that it starts to lose its steam it kind of starts to kind of drag and go all over the place for me personally but I do think it was a nice plot twist I think another um Nice plot twist was the fact that they weren't born, they were made. And suddenly, Thena's frame of mind made sense. It wasn't that she was actually suffering from a mental break, maybe maybe a little. But it was really because she had all those memories from past lives. Because each time they complete a mission, the maker resets their memories, and they don't remember anything that happens. And so, Thena was remembering 
the last time that they tried to reset her memory, something went wrong and she was actually remembering her past lives. And so that's what they called mad weary, but really it was, she kind of already had those realizations about what her reality and what was going on before they did. And obviously the characters in the film do apologize to her because they realized what was going on. So that was a nice little plot twist. And these little twists in the story, um, were interesting enough to kind of keep me engaged with the film. I really only started to kind of zone a little out of the film towards the end. One point that was brought up in the film that I love was that they, uh, the Eternals were called out for their lack of aid during Thanos' reign of terror and during other horrible wars and genocides that occurred in history. And like I said, part of the main fabric of this film is humanity and whether humans were worth saving or not and you see characters like Druig and um, Makari and even Fastos where it's we're seeing the destruction that humans are creating are we going to get in the middle of it or we're just gonna let them be and Druig was one of the ones where even though one of their main rules is to not interfere he breaks that rule and decides, if I have the power to stop these people from killing and hurting each other, I will. And Fastos has kind of the opposite where, you know, he was the technology guy where he can build technology with magic or whatever. And he kind of, even though Ajak had warned him to not give human beings more modern technology, because she probably knew what would happen if we had our hands on it, he did it anyway because he felt like humans weren't getting there on their own fast enough. And then you see that he's behind one of the most deadliest wars. And he blames himself because he gave the humans those weapons to kill each other. And you see him kind of turn his back on, on civilization and on humans and say they're not worth saving because they don't know. How, they're inherently bad. They're not good. And this is one of the first films to really touch on the fact that Sometimes superheroes do more harm than good. Sometimes their their intentions are good, but they harm more than they help. And I thought it was interesting that the, Eter the Eternals were called out for that because I remember when they were introduced, my first thought was, well, if they're supposed to protect human beings, then where were they with Thanos? Why didn't they interfere? And Ajak always told them, that's not our place to, because then if we interfere with them, they're never going to learn from their mistakes. But on the other hand, it seems like we don't ever, and that's real life, we don't ever really learn from history. We always seem to be bound to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And you know what they say, you know, you keep making the same decisions and mistakes, you're going to get the same results. It's never going to be a different outcome. And so I, I do like the fact that they touched on humanity kind of, because in these superhero movies, obviously you get caught up in the supernatural aspect of it all. And you forget that we, the superheroes are encountering human beings. We're not just little chess pieces that you can knock off the board where we're real. So I do like that they brought up that point. The way the Eternals ended, it makes sense that a sequel is going to follow. Now a lot of characters, I don't want to say a lot, but a good amount of the characters died in the end. So it is going to be interesting how they make a sequel. And now that, you know, 
Doctor Strange and all the other things in Marvel are playing with time and universes, it's very possible that these characters will come back. They were literally built. So it's always possible that the maker can rebuild or reset Ajax's memory and bring her back to life. And I did like the story enough in this first film. I like the way they ended things. So I would be interested enough to actually sit and watch a sequel. I know critics were really harsh on this film and I know I talked about a lot of the things I didn't enjoy with the movie, but I also talked about some of the things that I did enjoy. I don't think the film is as bad as a, the critics are saying it is. I do think it needs work and hopefully the director and the writers are listening and paying attention to what the critics are saying and they try to fix those mistakes for the second film. Now I quickly did want to get into the end credit because I spent a lot of time on this review, more time than I thought I would. Um, the end credit introduces Thanos' brother, who is played by Harry Styles. Now, I'm not thrilled by the casting choice just because I don't think that Harry Styles is that strong of an actor. I've seen him in bits and pieces and other things. He's good at the music thing. I don't think I would have given a role as, I imagine, important, like the role of Thanos' brother to Harry Styles. I don't think it's a fit. It is interesting that they are bringing his brother in. I don't know much about um, the brother, I don't keep up with the comics. I'm more of like a movie and TV kind of fan of these things when it comes to Marvel. So I don't know how much of a role that Thanos' brother is playing in the comics right now. I don't trust him because Thanos was so evil. And yeah, I know that just because the brother was evil doesn't mean that, you know, I think, I forgot his name, Star something is going to be evil. We don't know. But I don't trust him. I also think it's kind of random, his appearance in the Eternals maybe it'll make more sense by the time the next one comes out or you know he'll probably pop up in another film so I don't really know how to feel about that and it kind of gave me his personality and even his introduction kind of gave me a Guardians of the Galaxy feel very campy very bright very funny and I feel like the way the film ended was kind of dark so it kind of that that was kind of like a weird I won't even say juxtaposition. It just didn't feel right. So not my favorite end credit scene, but it does leave me with questions of, of how this next phase is going to go now that the events of the Eternals has occurred. And before I give the rating of this film, I will say that I do think that the some of the events, though I don't think it's as important to watch the Eternals, I do think that there will be a reference to what happened in this film in Doctor Strange for some reason. I think we're going to see a lot of different references. So the rating I want to give The Eternals is a 6 out of 10. Like I said, pretty solid storyline. It just needed a lot of work and hopefully by the sequel they fix those things up. So moving on from The Eternals, Bryson Tiller is dropping a Christmas project. Actually, by the time this episode comes out, it'll already be out. This Christmas project is inspired by both Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande's Christmas projects, which I thought was really interesting. And um, I'm surprised that not more artists aren't actually coming out with more Christmas albums and projects inspired by Bieber and Ariana because a lot of people clown Justin when he dropped his Christmas album in November. Even I thought it was weird to, to drop it in November. I, I just feel like Christmas music should just stay in December. That's just me. But the album, however, shut all of that up because it was so good. And I feel like amongst my peer group, I see like a lot of like everyday people like myself talk about how, you know, even if they're not a fan of Justin Bieber, they love this Christmas album. But I'm surprised it's not talked in talked about enough in wider conversations because it is a really good Christmas album. I think he 
you know, I'm not going to say that he's the only one who's put out good original music for like original Christmas albums, but I feel like a lot of people who do put them out tend to redo the same old Christmas songs we've already heard. So it was nice when Justin Bieber dropped his album because yeah, it was a couple of songs we had already heard. And then he kind of did his own original. It, it was like a new album, essentially, you know, even though it was for Christmas, it was a new Justin Bieber album. It's considered in his discography under his albums. So, and same with Ariana Grande, she's always dropped EPs, but again, her Christmas music was mostly original. I think she had maybe one or two covers or remixes, but they were all original and they were also fun takes on what Christmas music can sound like. It wasn't the traditional Christmas music. She kind of put her own spin on it. There were some trap inspired Christmas songs that actually worked. So it was, I, I was, I respected the fact that Bryson credited them, you know, for inspiring this project because I think that, you know, for my peer group, Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande make some of the best Christmas music. Maybe even outside of my peer group, I think if you talk about artists with really great Christmas projects, they should be on that list because I don't imagine that creating Christmas music is always easy either. So I know some people clowned Bryson because they don't want a Christmas project for him. They, they'd rather have like original music, but I'm looking forward to that. Um, speaking of Justin Bieber, he's also featured on this project. I think that's actually going to be the single from this um, little, I think it's a different Christmas. I think that's what it's called. And it seems like it has a music video. So I've been really waiting for Bryson and Justin to collab on a record and I'm finally getting it and I'm looking forward to it, even if it's just a Christmas song. Hopefully this sparks more collaborations from the two of them. You know, Bryson's working on new music. Justin Bieber keeps posting pictures in the studio. I'm assuming he's working on his next album. So maybe there's room there for more collaborations. So I also wanted to get into some of the new releases from last week. Starting off with Beyonce's new song, Be Alive, from the King Richard movie. Ever since 2016, Beyonce has mastered creating the empowering black anthem, and Be Alive is just that. The production has both R&B and rock elements, and when this is done right, it's beautiful and soulful, and it's achieved very well here. The guitar is one of the standouts to me as it's bold and gives the song edge and soul, and shout out to Dixon for that. Beyonce's vocals and layered harmonies sound amazing. Her voice gets better and better with age. When you hear that opening line, it feels so good to be alive. With those layered harmonies, it feels like a heavenly experience. My favorite lines are, quote, And can't nobody knock it if they tried. This is hustle personified. Look how we've been fighting to stay alive. So when we win, we will have pride. Do you know how much we have cried? How hard we had to fight? Now, to me... This film, this song, it's all very clear that it's a part of a Oscar campaign. I think that's why it's not being, the song is not marketed like a typical Beyonce song. And it's a song from a film soundtrack. It's very rare when film, songs from a film son, soundtrack really blow up like that. I know it's, it's, it happens. I won't say completely rare. It happens, but I don't think most listeners go into uh, listening to a song from a soundtrack and expecting it to be a hit. It's not really for that, and especially not a song like Be Alive. It's very clear that she is gunning for an Oscar, and a lot of early Oscar critics are saying that they think it has a high chance of not only being nominated, but winning. So no, it is not performing like a typical Beyonce record, but 
I mean, who cares? Because it is a part of a movie soundtrack. And I don't think that's the point of this record. Like I said, she's gunning for that Oscar. And I'm pretty sure she's got it in the bag. Ashanti announced that she is re-recording her masters. And of course, Irv Gotti is not pleased about this. He said that Ashanti is trying to, quote, fuck him out of his money and his and the masters and, and pretty much trying to make her out to be the villain, saying that she's just sabotaging the work and the magic that they created. Listen, Irv Gotti, if you gave her a, a proper deal and didn't fuck her out of her money with songs that she wrote and sang on and created, then she wouldn't have to re-record her masters, much like all of these artists. Taylor Swift, JoJo, if their label had done right by them and had given them the opportunity to get their masters back in 10, 20 years, this would not be happening. So I'm going to support Ashanti re-recording her masters. And when she does, I'm probably only going to listen to those. And it's a shame that artists have to do this to force the label's hand because eventually the, uh, these, the audience is now, we know what's going on. We're, we're more knowledgeable on these things. We pay attention more. And fan loyalty is stronger than I think some of these labels give credit for because a recent article came out where Scooter Braun admitted that he didn't think Taylor Swift was really going to go through with re-recording her masters. And Lord knows her stands are rabid and crazy. They're going to like die for her, which means that they are going to strictly stream the re-recordings over the masters. Those masters are going to be rendered useless in the next five years, and they're going to end up giving them back to her. And I think that Ashanti, even though her fan base may not be as big and as rabid as Taylor Swift's is, they're going to be loyal loyal to her. I'm sitting here behind this mic telling you that I will only be streaming her re-recordings once they come out because that's where she's making her money. And I believe that these labels and these um, executives are greedy as hell, and this is what they get. And like I said, fan loyalty is something else. So I think that eventually Ashanti will probably have her masters and it took it will it will take her having to re-record to get them. But I support her. Moving on from Ashanti, before I get into my thoughts on um Adele's, I almost said Ariana, Adele's CBS special one night only. Now, as I'm recording this episode, by the time it actually comes out, Adele's album is going to be out. And so these thoughts are, you know, before hearing the album, you guys are going to have to wait a little bit longer for um, the next episode in the album review just because it's Thanksgiving week and, you know, it's a time to be with family and prepping for Thanksgiving. So I, I won't have time to really plan. And I also really want to sit with 30 because when Adele drops an album, she's just one of those artists where you really have to sit with her album. And I'm sorry, I can't do that in just a week. I'm going to have so many thoughts. So I just want to um, start off this conversation by saying that by the time you guys listen to this episode, the album will be out, but it's not out quite yet. So Adele, when this was announced, and I think I talked about it on the podcast when it was announced, that she was doing the special, I said, I have to tune in because I knew that it was not likely that Adele was going to tour for 30 because she always striked me as an artist that likes to tour behind her album and she's not going to wait a year to do so. And she confirmed this, that she doesn't feel right dropping an album in 2021 and then waiting to tour in 2023. So we won't get a tour. Also, Adele has been relatively silent before this. She did one, she hosted SNL, I think last year, but she was relatively quiet. And I think we all missed Adele. I think part of the appeal of waiting so long to drop music is that when you do come back out 
the fans appreciate it more because Adele is not a I drop every year, two years kind of girl. Her last album came out five years, was it six years ago? And I think the time between 21 and 25 was about the same amount. So she takes her time with the music and with the music that Adele creates, you need to live your life to really pull inspiration from something like that. Like this is real raw emotions. So she can't do that in two years. And so this has been, I guess, since 25, everything we're going to hear on 30 um, is, a, is a, like a little kind of like a journal entry of, of that time for her. And so I was super excited to watch this because I'm like, I haven't seen Adele. I've never seen her live, but I haven't seen her or heard her sing in years. Like, of course I'm going to watch. And it was everything that I was hoping it was going to be. I know a lot of people were doubtful that Adele could still sing because she dropped a lot of weight. I guess sometimes that has an effect on the vocals. She proved everybody wrong because she sang those damn songs. You know, Adele's always been a really skilled singer, but you can tell that she's maybe learned from past mistakes and you could, just by the way that she sang um, certain songs, the the keys and the range she chose to sing certain songs, you can tell she was singing in those ranges to protect her voice. Not everything needs to be belted out. It's actually not healthy. So it puts a strain on your, on your voice. Um, so she sounded better than ever. She looked good. And the interview that she gave with Oprah was really, really good. And I know a lot of people had their comments about her divorce because she essentially put herself first and decided to get a divorce because she just wasn't in love with her husband anymore. And a lot of people felt like it cheapened marriage, like she failed because she left because she wasn't in love with someone anymore. And some people feel like, oh, well, you're not always going to be in love with your significant other. It's not about that. It's about whether you want to make the institution of marriage work. I don't agree with that. I think that's part of why marriages aren't successful. You Just because you didn't get divorced doesn't mean your marriage is successful, first of all. I think that life is too short to spend time with someone that you truly do not want to be with. If you are not in love with someone, it does not make sense to stay with that person. You're going to have days where you don't like each other. But I think every happily married couple can still say they're in love with each other. They may not feel like newlyweds. They may not like each other sometimes. But I don't think... I've ever heard my parents ever say, we're not in love with each other. doesn't matter how long they've been married. I know 100% that they're still in love with each other. Once you fall out of love, I really don't think that there's a point in trying to make the relationship work. I mean, you fall out of love, you kind of already have one foot out the door, even if you remain married. And I do like the fact that she touched on that in her interview with Oprah, because I think so many people, but specifically women because, or straight women, are taught to kind of stay in relationships and to make them work even when they're not, to make their man happy, to do this and that, to put you know their kids above their happiness and all of this. And I think it comes off as selfish to certain people when the woman decides, you know what, I'm not happy and I'm not gonna put an- anybody else's happiness in front of mine anymore. I've been doing that for so long. I'm not happy, I'm leaving. And You know, Adele admitted that she felt like a failure and that she was failing her son. But what she also said was that she felt like she would have been an even bigger failure by staying in a marriage she wasn't happy in. And I think it 
for traditionalists, because you can be a traditionalist at 23. You can be my age in my peer group and still have those values. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think it bothers traditionalists because Adele pretty much just said, I wasn't miserable in the marriage, but I wasn't in love and I wasn't at my happiness. And like I said, life is too short to remain in anything that doesn't make you happy, whether it's a relationship, a marriage, a job, remain in certain friendships that aren't good for you anymore. And I think that a lot, I hear a lot of stories from people who were married for 50 years that said, oh, it was, it was hell. I don't think I ever want to look down the line 50 years and look at my spouse and go, this was hell. Or, you know, I stayed in a marriage for 50 years that I wasn't truly happy in. I think that the whole, there's no failure in, in marriage. I don't believe that there's ever failure. I think people get married because at the time it's right or they feel like it's right. And then sometimes it doesn't work and they leave. I think that anytime you're doing things to make you happy is a success so if you got divorced because it wasn't working that's a success if you stayed in a marriage that you're miserable in to me that can be a failure so I do like that she touched on certain topics like that because Adele is I think is she 31 now I don't know um I think she's in that age group where marriage kind of People have that stigma about marriage. So I think it was kind of important for her to kind of talk about that. She also talked about her weight, which she doesn't always talk about. And I liked what she had to say about that too, because I feel like when it comes to celebrities, there's a whole lot of projection that us everyday people put on them. And I think that trying to make Adele the poster for body positivity wasn't right because she admits herself that she didn't lose the weight intentionally. She lost the weight because she just so happened to feel good about working out and it got her mind off of her divorce and all of those negative feelings. It was kind of like therapy for her. And in the middle of that, she lost weight and she said she'd have no problem gaining it back or, you know, with her weight fluctuating. And same thing with Lizzo. A lot of people have a lot of things to say about people, one, they don't know, and two, um, about things they don't really know about. We don't know what Lizzo goes through. We don't know what her doctors tell her. We don't know what health issues she may or may not have. Um, so I, I don't love that people, when they lose weight, they get a lot of that flack because like I said, if you felt a way about Adele losing weight because it makes you feel bad about yourself, that's a deeper conversation that you probably need to have with yourself or with the therapist or with somebody else. That projection shouldn't be placed on these people because we don't know them one and two we don't know their reasons for losing or gaining weight or whatever so I am also glad that she touched on that but onto the music side of things those new songs that she debuted on CBS one night only so good this Adele's pen has always been immaculate but it seems like what with what she's been through it's just caused her to become even stronger as a writer like these songs each song she did I'm like oh I like that one that's gonna be a favorite it was like I said that about each one I drink wine I already know I'm gonna be running that back but what the song that really stood out to me is love is a game and I know a lot of people are talking about to be loved I didn't listen to the snippet that 
Adele played because I just want to hear it for myself when the album drops. A lot of critics and a lot of people are talking about that record. But for me right now, Love is a Game is the one, the lyrics, the soul, like Adele. I really don't like that sometimes people try to place her in the pop category because Adele is soul through and through. I think they call it blue-eyed soul. She has so much soul. Like this isn't pop music. You know, this is like you feel this music in your gut like even someone who has never been married never been divorced I'm gonna feel that album I'm gonna because the emotions like that just can't be ignored and love is a game really that was the one for me and I loved the live arrangement for it the strings like gave me like a 60s cinematic like vibe to it I'm I know I'm really really gonna love that song there's this one line I don't have it written down I think she said, sometimes loneliness is the only rest we get. And I think during this pandemic, a lot of us can relate to this because a lot of us were forced to just hang out and be with ourselves and get to know each other. And I mean, not get to know each other, get to know ourselves and certain sides of ourselves we thought were ugly and certain sides we didn't know exist. And um, sometimes when you're by yourself, you can kind of get rest away from other people and the troubles of life and you can just focus on yourself so that line was really really like that really stuck out to me and critics are already saying that 30 is Adele's best album and based off of this one night only special I'm definitely not thinking that's a reach I think that that's pretty accurate those songs I'm telling you I think she introduced three new ones everyone I loved. So 30 is going to be incredible. I can't wait to sink my teeth into that album. Moving on from Adele and 30, you know I had to get into my Silk Sonic review. An Evening with Silk Sonic by Silk Sonic is a beautiful mix of 70s and 80s inspired funk, R&B, soul, and rock music. What stands out to me the most when I listen to this body of work is the production. The fact that Bruno, Anderson, and DeMille all play instruments is what elevates the production. It's what makes Silk Sonic sound like an actual band and makes them sound authentic. I don't think this album would have hit as hard if the production sounded computerized, if that makes sense. If it sounded like it just came out of a laptop or, saw, or you know, like, not software, but like, if it sounded like a bunch of synthetic instruments, it just wouldn't have, the album wouldn't have felt as authentic to me. The strings and the drums are probably my favorite parts of the production throughout the album, but I also love how layered the beats are. It makes the song sound grand and dramatic and full, and I can only imagine how much better it's going to sound live. And trust me, as soon as they go on tour, I'm getting tickets. I don't mind going to a few shows. I'll go to one with my dad. He enjoyed this album. I'll go with some of my friends who love this album. I don't mind going to a few shows. That's how much I believe in Silk Sonic and how much I enjoyed this album. Bruno and Anderson's vocals sound great, and Bruno had a lot of shining moments on this album vocally, particularly in Put On A Smile. He was doing his good, good, good singing on that song. I definitely think Anderson stepped up his game vocally, but he almost had to because you're singing along Bruno Mars, whose falsetto is crazy high, who has an incredible tone. So he almost had to do so. I think they also pulled off making this album sound really, really modern, even though you can tell that it was heavily influenced by 70s and 80s. I know a lot of people were criticizing this album for sounding too dated or sounding like they kind of got lost in their influences instead of making it their own thing. 
I disagree. I hear a lot of Bruno's mannerisms in this song. I mean, throughout this album and, and same for Anderson Pack. You know, the beats and even some of the way it's written may sound very clearly inspired by past acts from the 70s and 80s, but, you know, there are certain things that you can just that just sound modern. You can just tell that that's all Bruno and all Anderson. I know other people's criticisms are saying that they jacked Victoria Monet and Lucky Day Sound. First of all, they all work with the same producer. And I think it's an insult to DeMille to try to claim that he's giving uh, Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack recycled um, beats that he's already given away. I think DeMille is one of the most versatile producers and that's why he's been able to last for so long and why all of these artists are working with him. And honestly, I think there's something wrong with your ears if you listen to the Silk Sonic album and you hear Victoria Monet or you hear Lucky Day. I am huge fans of both of those artists and let me tell you something, an evening with Silk Sonic sounds nothing like Jaguar. It sounds nothing like um, Painted. The only common thread they have is that the fact that they are inspired by 70s and 80s, but Come on now. I know some of you guys don't like Bruno Mars, but let's be real here. This is this is a reach. <laughs> and also, while listening to this album, you can't ignore the immense amount of chemistry that both Bruno and Anderson have. And you can just tell they really feed off of each other, that they're genuinely good friends and that they have a good time making music. I think that's also part of why this album came out so good. They trust each other. They bounce ideas off of each other and things like that. And, you know, on a nine-track album like this, you really can't afford to miss. And each song hits. Each song is good. I can't say that there's a single song that I feel like could have been left off of the album. Um, so they did really good with that. And that's probably part of the reason why it's so short. You know, it's easier to avoid fillers that way. I was caught off guard when I found out that Big Sean has a writing credit on Fly As Me. Um, he's not credited on the Spotify credits, but if you go on Genius, he's, you know, credited as an additional writer. Anderson Pack, he does both singing and rapping, so I just would have assumed that he wrote his parts. I can't really tell you if I can tell which part of the song that Big Sean had a handle on writing. Like, I can tell um, which part he probably influenced on Janae's, um, I think it's, oh, I should know this. That song, Back Up On My Bullshit. I don't know if it's called bs or back on my bs one of the two he has a writing credit on that record and you can kind of tell you can hear his influence but on fly as me anderson pack kind of I, and i don't think that that big sean probably wrote a whole lot of it but he probably took whatever parts big sean wrote and made it his own which is always a good thing of course i have to give credit to demile i love him he is incredible he is a huge reason why this album works why Jaguar worked, why Painted work. He is not just only a producer. He um, he doesn't just produce the beats. He, you know, you can really tell when a producer puts input into these records. And, you know, like I said, DeMille plays his own instruments. And I've heard interviews where Bruno said that, you know, DeMille sometimes helped put these songs together. So we have to give a shout out to him. One of my favorite parts about him as a producer is his horns the way he layers his horns the way he kind of layers all the different instruments together and the production if that makes sense he's just anytime he produces a record it sounds like you're sitting in a in a arena or like you're listening to a song live it sounds so lively it sounds so real gotta give a shout out to him 
The only downside to this album was the length, and though every track is good, the storytelling aspect would have been stronger if they had a longer length to help stretch out the story a little bit. So I wanted to get into my top tracks. Of course, Leave the Door Open is on here, Smoking Out the Window, After Last Night, Put on a Smile, and Blast Off. Now, I already dug deep into Leave the Door Open and Smoking Out the Window, so I won't revisit what I've already said, but I'm still not sick of Leave the Door Open and Smoking Out the Window may surpass Leave the Door Open soon. I love that record. So I'm going to start off with After Last Night. What I love the most about this track is the bass. It's so funky. It's played by Thundercat and he did the damn thing. I still have to get into Thundercat's music. I liked certain songs that he's on, that he's featured on. So I really do have to get into his music because I, I hear such good things. And like I said, he did his damn thing on, on this track. This track is just really groovy, it's well produced, and I love the way it's written. Thundercat's background vocals help set the tone and his voice melts well with Bruno's and Anderson's voices. I also really love the drums and really enjoy Anderson's drum style. I can't really describe it, it just adds bounce to every track. You can tell he really um, has a good ear for rhythm and he just creates really dope drum patterns. After Last Night and most of this album can really pass for an album that came out in the 70s and 80s. My favorite lines are, quote, You put it on me like I never felt before. That gushy, gushy, good girl. I want some more. Sweet, sticky, thick and pretty. You changed the game. And it's lines like that where you just can tell that that's all Anderson and Bruno. The next song I wanted to get into is Put on a Smile. It's amazing to me that the original version of this track sucked, or according to Anderson Pack, it sucked, which I think is funny. Because the way Anderson and Babyface helped transform this song is incredible. You can hear Babyface's vocals in the background, which I didn't notice until I was reading the lyrics on Genius, and I read the story about how the song came together, and then I could kind of hear him. Without all of this, Put on a Smile sounds like a song we've already heard from Bruno back in 2012. I love a good, slow, sad love song, and this song fulfilled that need, and I was hoping they were going to do one of those on this album, and I'm glad they did. Despite being sad and slow, the horns and strings still give it a big dramatic ending, and I just feel like it fills up the space that may not have been there in Bruno's original recording of the record. This song is Bruno's best vocal moment on the album. That falsetto towards the end, incredible. It really sells the emotion of the lyrics, and every time I listen to the song, I feel like serenading someone outside of their window while it's pouring rain out. It's, it's a beautiful record. My favorite lines are, quote, trying to put on a smile, trying to fight these tears from crying, but Lord knows I'm dying, dying. The last song I wanted to get into is Blast Off. I love the, psycho the psychedelic, sorry, I love the psychedelic aspect of this track. It just sounds so dreamy, and they both sound angelic. I love that you can hear the influence of different genres in the production. The guitar and drums have a rock edge, and the keys and strings give it that 80s funk and groovy feel. I love, love, love it. My favorite lines are, quote, Oh, let's tiptoe to a magical place. Blast off and kiss the moon tonight. We'll watch the world go crazy from outer space. Blast off into the sky. Literally, this whole song, I don't know what it's like to be, to be high, but while listening to the song, I can imagine they really kind of, they created that ambiance really well. Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack created a major problem with Silk Sonic, and that problem is that this album is so good that we're going to be begging for more Silk Sonic albums for years to come. 
An Evening with Silk Sonic is a carefully crafted album with mouthwatering production, fun lyrics, good vocals, and great chemistry. This is the result of taking your time with an album and having a clear direction. This was worth the wait. So this week marked 10 years of Drake's Take Care album. And damn, it does not feel like it's been that long. It feels like I'm still too young to have albums that impacted me turn 10. But like, it was just, it blew my mind. When I think back to albums that really had a hold on me or that shaped a period of my life, Take Care is one of the first albums to come to my mind. Back in 2011, there was nothing like this out. A rapper that rapped as much as he sang, a rapper that ushered in a new way of singing and creating R&B music was unheard of and it was so fascinating to hear. Dropping a lead single as dark and as moody and as far from a typical rap lead single at the time, like Marvin's Room, Shouldn't have worked, but it did. Though he got clowned for it then and still now, Drake showed men and other male artists that it was okay to show emotion in the music and to cater to the women. And honestly, Drake is still the best rapper at this and you see his impact in a lot of the rappers out today. Drake always had a way of writing from a perspective that so many people can relate to. And on Take Care, he does it the best. Another strong suit of his is how self-reflective he is in his music. Though it's become a little lazy over the years, on Take Care, he was at his best at this. There are so many memorable lines from so many songs on this album that we were all using as captions on Instagram during its baby stages. Like, I remember Take Care, and I remember the early version of Instagram. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. I think Instagram came out in 2012. That was back when we were listening through Take Care and other Drake songs to find out which caption hit the best. And yeah, people still use Drake caption, Drake lyrics as captions today, but it hit a lot better back then. And of course, we can't talk about Take Care without talking about the, how the weekends and 40s contributions on Take Care shaped it to be what it is. You can hear The weekend's influence and you can hear 40s magic throughout this album. There would be no Drake without 40 and that's just so apparent on this album. To sum up Take Care, it's about a young Drake who's hungrier than ever, who is on the rise and suffering from anxiety, pressure, and fear of failure while trying to maintain the buzz and high he had on So Far Gone and hoping to not only live up to it, but to finally surpass it and today in 2021, we know that he does. Take Care makes me nostalgic for a lot of reasons as I have many memories attached to this album. But as I listen to this album at 23, I'm hit with the sad reminder that this isn't the Drake we have anymore. While it's important for artists to grow, it's also important for an artist to not grow stagnant or stale. And over the past couple of years, it's been very clear that Drake just needs inspiration. He needs to find that hunger again. This album also was the start of Drake's impact on like just having the catchiest lines and the memorable lines and songs that really impact the year. And from Take Care, you have Marvin's Room, which everybody and their mother covered and remixed. And then you have the motto, which birthed YOLO, which you could not go anywhere without hearing for like for all for the rest of 2011 and for all of 2012. That was really the start of Drake being a staple as the guy who kind of shapes the culture with the song. Like, obviously, later on in his career, he had the one dances and the hotline blings, but Take Care was really the start of 
Drake's importance in rap and just in music period. It was also a moment, Take Care was also a moment for Drake to bounce back from the critics after Thank Me Later. Like a lot of people felt like, okay, maybe So Far Gone was a fluke. He's the tale as old as time. A guy who had a really dope mixtape. He went to, he signed to a major. His debut album fell flat, much like J. Cole's story. And maybe he's just not all of that. And I think Take Care was Drake being allowed to, okay, I gave the label what they wanted with Thank Me Later. And now it's time to do my thing. It's time to be myself and be me. And we heard that on So Far Gone, and then we just heard that in an even more elevated fashion on Take Care. So, of course, in honor of its 10-year anniversary, I have to revisit my five favorite tracks from the album. I have to start off with Marvin's Room, which is a very sad and moody ballad about an ex that you're still in love with who has moved on and feeling like the person they've moved on with just does not compare to you. Marvin's Room shouldn't have worked as a lead single from a rapper because it was everything a lead single shouldn't be. It's slow, it's dark, and it's very, very moody. Way too moody for radio. But it worked. Why? Because it was undeniable. It introduced a sound that no one had heard and inspired many R&B tracks like it to come. Marvin's Room really shaped the Bryson Tillers, the Janays, and I hate to even bring him up, but even the Tories. And it even inspired the second leg of JoJo's career, from 40s underwater and spacious-like production to the way it's written. How can we forget the countless covers of the song that followed? The introspection and emotions we love so much from Drake can be heard throughout the song, and honestly, I don't think Drake himself can ever top this. My favorite lines are, quote, Fuck that nigga that you love so bad, I know you still think about the times we had. I said, fuck that nigga that you think you found, and since you picked up, I know he's not around. The next song I wanted to get into is Over My Dead Body. Now, if Tuscan Leather didn't exist, this would be Drake's greatest intro of all time. Over My Dead Body revisits the year between Thank Me Later and Take Care and focuses on Drake's position in hip-hop after people felt he had fallen off with lines like, quote, Are these people really discussing my career again? Asking if I'll be going platinum in a year again. Don't I got this shit the world want to hear again? Though Michael Jordan still got his hoop earring in. And also lines like, quote, You say I'm old news, well, who the new star? It is very clear that Drake was very aware of what was being said about him and took that constructive criticism and spit it back out at his critics. His pen was as sharp as ever, and even though certain lines haven't aged well, for the most part, they were razor sharp. Oh, and that sample? Divine. My favorite lines, quote, yeah, don't make me take your life apart, boy. You and whoever the fuck gave you your start, boy. Oh, you want to be a motherfucking funny guy? Don't make me break your Kevin Hart, boy. And also, quote, And I don't ever be tripping off of what ain't mine, and I be hearing the shit you say through the grapevine, but jealousy is just love and hate at the same time. Again, this is Baby Drake with a tiny chip on his shoulder that's just beginning to grow. The next song I wanted to get into is Shot For Me. One of my favorite R&B cuts from this album is this song. It has great memorable lines and maintains the drama that every R&B track should have, which is largely thanks to The Weeknd. You can tell when a singer has their hands in writing a track and you can hear his influence on the song. Take Care is a great reminder that 40 should go back to being the main producer on Drake's albums rather than just being the engineer because when he's behind the production, he brings out the best in Drake. The production on this track is so, so good and Drake's singing is believable. My favorite lines are, quote, the way you walk, 
that's me. The way you talk, that's me. The way you got your hair up, did you forget, that's me. And the voice in your speaker right now, that's me. The next song I wanted to get into, possibly like one of my, I know this is a, a list of my favorite songs, but really, really one of my favorites is Underground Kings. And on this track, Drake kind of battles with the fame and money and women, like all the things that come with being a rapper. And you can just really hear on this track how young, how much of a baby Drake is. And as much as I love R&B Drake, I love rapper Drake just as much. And on UGK, he's spitting and considering this track is him paying homage to Pimpsey and the actual group UGK. I guess he kind of had to, and he's rapping for his life. He glides right in from the opening bars and keeps that momentum going throughout the rest of the song, and his flow is impeccable. The production is dope, and the drums are so layered and give the song its edge. I really love the loop, too. It pairs well with the drums. My favorite lines are, quote, It's been two years since somebody asked me who I was. I'm the greatest man. I said that before I knew I was. And also, quote, Sometimes I need that romance, sometimes I need that pole dance, sometimes I need that stripper that's gonna tell me that she don't dance, tell me lies, make it sound good, make it sound good, do me like the women from my town would, and I really love this line because it's he's paying homage to his song that really introduced him as a rapper on Degrassi, he's got a song called Tell Me Lies, and that was the first time anybody, you know, had really heard Drake rap, I guess, the public really, I'm sure he had been rapping before then, I know he had been, um, but that was the first time they introduced Jimmy as potentially trying to have a rap career, which was obviously Drake's, you know, influence. And I love that even past his Degrassi days. I mean, take care. He wasn't that far removed from Degrassi at that point. But I love the fact that he still acknowledged his time on that show. The last song I wanted to get into is Lord Knows, which features Rick Ross. I love cocky Drake and Lord knows is Drake boasting about how the things people criticize him for are what makes him so successful. I also love that this track is straight bars with no hook. Lord knows is my favorite Drake and Ross collab. They brought out the best in each other. Just Blaze also went absolutely nuts on this beat. The gospel choir loop and sample makes the song sound so uplifting and gives it a lot of soul. And those drums, insane. One of my favorite things that Just Blaze does is his drums. They're ridiculous. My favorite lines are, quote, I'm hearing all of the jokes. I know that they trying to push me. I know that showing emotion don't ever mean I'm a pussy. Know that I don't make music for niggas who don't get pussy. So those are the ones I count on to diss me or overlook me. So those are my five favorite tracks from Take Care. It was hard coming up with just five because really I love this album through and through. I am disappointed that Hate Sleeping Alone still is not on streaming services, but that's that was technically a bonus record at the time, so I guess that's why. I might go back on iTunes and just buy the record again. I really, really love that record. Revisiting Take Care, it feels like I never kind of go too long without revisiting some songs off of the album. I have a whole Drake playlist and songs from that album are filled um, with songs from that album, but it was really nice to kind of sit back and just revisit a time of my life that was just, this album was so impactful for me and just was really my start to really falling in love with rap. And, and I think at, in 2011, that's all I was really listening to. Drake, Nicki, Cole, some Big Sean, Eminem. So I was, I was really listening to rap at that time and, and Take Care was just one of those albums I can talk about all day and all night. And hopefully on the 20th 
anniversary we can get like some songs from the vault songs that they created during that era that we just never heard so before i end this episode of course i have to get into the song of the week and the song of the week is of course smoking out the window by silk sonic now i'm not going to keep repeating myself and getting into why i love this record but it's so so good if you don't listen to any song off of that album you should at least listen to leave the door open and also smoking out the window that's just anderson and bruno at their best they're just not playing fair on that track it's just so addicting so so good so please check out that song if you haven't heard it but if you listen to this podcast that means you have good taste and you know what's what so i know you've heard that song before so we have reached the end of this episode thank you guys so much for listening to me rant and ramble for close to two hours i appreciate it again i am really thankful to those of you who support and showed out and up for last week's episode. It means the most. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to keep up with me further, then you can head to my website, www.listentomespeak.com. There are links to all of my social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, even YouTube. And if you enjoy this podcast as a whole, especially this episode, last week's episode, then please give your girl a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can rate podcasts. And if you want to support this podcast further, then please consider donating to my listeners' donations, which can be found on my Anchor page or on my website, which is again, www.listentomespeak.com. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.